it's about looking, trying to find the best out of things, the best out of where you are, look at what you have, be grateful for stuff, and just taking each day a little bit as well. Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that is still revealing the magicians behind the magic after 70 episodes. This week on the show, we have Jason Brown from Jelly Smack, and we of course get into what Jelly Smack is, but we also chat about branding and brand perception, the world of advertisement through the eyes of Jason, and we get into some real talk about dealing with anxiety and depression, an important discussion that is often avoided between us men. Well, let's jump right into it then. Here's Jason Brown. Jason Brown, and I'm country manager for UK Island and Nordics, jellysmack.com. Very cool. So why don't we start at the top then? So uh, what, what is Jellysmack? It's essentially an uh, opportunity for global creators to make themselves and grow their sales revenue opportunities and make themselves bigger. Go bigger is our strategy. Essentially working with people across a variety of different social channels. So for example, we have a creator program, so we take people from YouTube and grow their grow their uh, channel into Facebook, expand the opportunity for them to grow and, rev- um, and build revenue without having to do anything extra. So anything they produce on YouTube, we have this huge, amazing AI tech data in the background, which we utilize with huge amounts of quality people, such as editors, community managers, content strategists, et cetera, acquisition guys and girls to grow, build, and monetize a revenue stream on Facebook for them that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. Um, as you're aware, you know, there's huge amounts of data required to understand, you know, the algorithms of Facebook, how to monetize it better, get longer viewing and maximize revenue. And that's really what we're looking for now to help them grow their channel and grow their revenue opportunities across multiple channels without necessarily having to do anymore. So essentially everything they're delivering on YouTube, in this example, we're editing, re-editing sometimes up to 100 times per video to hit the algorithm and hit exactly to hit the sweet spot that gives us the ultimate viewing time and monetize and grow revenue for that channel on Facebook. So, I mean, I'm simplifying things massively. If the CTO's here, he could probably go down a massive debt for you and talk to you about all these amazing things. But, you know, at, at the core of our offering across everything we have is our tech. We also have a, a huge amount of owned and operated channels because we are originally a creator. So we have Oh My Goal, House of Bounce and variety of, of other own and operated channels which we've had for a long period of time which started out jelly smack uh, to be honest and from this we have all this data billions and billions of views of months worth of data which allow us to add it to our ai tech and amazing backroom staff to be able to deliver the best opportunity to rev- rev- generate revenue across multiple streams in this example youtube to facebook so that's interesting so what sort of traditional model would you say jelly smack is then is it, is it a creator like you said originally has it gone through some sort of life cycle change to be almost sounds like pr i suppose in a way of like trying to blow somebody up on multiple platforms what, what sort of business type does this fit into well I, again you know as you say right so we essentially started out as a creator we are a creator uh we've owned multiple owned and operated channels doing millions billions of views so we understand what it's like to be a creator we still are a creator at heart and is that on on youtube primarily uh, Facebook, but we work across multiple channels, including YouTube as well. And we have YouTube channels as well. But what we, I think what we are is probably more towards that, uh, if I was to simplify it massively, more towards that music label side of things, whereby we work with creators that we feel we, we can give them the maximum opportunity to grow their revenue across 
multiple channels. So we would go to, I mean, for example, we worked with Mr. Beast, we worked with PewDiePie, we worked with Brad Mondo, but we also worked with people like Robert Fort Welsh, James Welsh in the UK, many, many others across globally. In fact, over 500 globally, where we feel that they are missing an opportunity to, or leaving money on the table, if you like, I want to use that phrase, um, by not maximizing their revenue opportunities across multiple channels. So Facebook being this instance. So, you know, PR would be simplifying it because we have, as I say, you know, we've got best in class AI and tech. We've got best-in-class editors, community managers, acquisition specialists, et cetera, et cetera, all allied to the data points that we've gathered over many years of being a creator ourselves and able us to be able to put all this together and drive and maximize their potential on Facebook, which many people try themselves and, you know, they fail because of the sheer volume and effort involved to do so. In fact, you know, it's, it's a, lot, a lot of creators come to us and say, look, we're doing we're earning fortunes on YouTube, we're doing really well on Instagram, whatever, whatever, but we just can't crack Facebook. And it's because, you know, you have to have that data, that AI, that tech, that back end uh, synergy, that understanding of what it is to drive and build Facebook to a level that actually is going to monetize and grow you decent revenue. And that takes, you know, skills and smarts both from an AI tech point of view, but also from obviously skilled personnel behind it running this machine. So can you, as a, as a company, can you claim, not ownership, do you look at a video and see like we worked with them on that specific video or do you work with the creators in, you know, is it an ongoing thing that they continue to keep coming back to you, for instance? It's normally on a, on a contract basis to be truthful. The main reason is, is that there's so much work we put behind the scenes to build something. Again, it's not a case of, uh, for example, if you go to your channel and it's successful, we've we've tested you and it looks like we can we can work with you and build you a revenue opportunity, etc. You know, we don't just go, oh, we'll try, you know, let's do it video by video because you have to build a channel. Nine times out of ten, you're building a channel for someone. You're you're putting you're putting a lot of money and expertise and time behind to get to a stage that's even monetizable, if that's a word, um, and then from that drive it so uh, to start then become. A, accurate, a quality revenue stream for them. So we're basically building your business. I guess if you took it took it away from this and said it and put it into another context, if I came to you with your business you have now and said, look, you're doing a great job, love what you're doing, I actually think that your business is transferable to Australia, right? But I don't want you to do anything else. Just do what you're doing now. I'm going to go and set a business up for you, which, by the way, you own. Put it into Australia build the business for you, set you up a revenue stream, and I'm going to give you half of all the money, but you've got to do nothing else, right? That is essentially what I'm saying. If you want to do more, by the way, and absolutely, we welcome it quite often. If creators want to get more involved, ask us what's working better, how can they maximize revenue on Facebook, for example, or Instagram or Twitter or TikTok or whatever we're working with them on, but let's keep Facebook to make things simple, and we can come back to them again with our expertise and understanding and say, actually, if you produce loads of content like this, you could potentially earn more than sometimes they do that. But the point is, is we want to make it life easier for the creator. So let's just get really specific now. You're, you're, you're working with Mr. Beast and PewDiePie, some of the biggest content creators in history. Specifically then, what have you done with Mr. Beast or, or PewDiePie to kind of demonstrate that partnership that you've you mentioned? The problem is I can't go into too much detail for obvious reasons. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and they're based in the US, so I'm going to going to plead I don't deal with them on a day to day basis. But essentially, what we we have taken their um, the content that they produce and 
and made it more efficient and driven the best possible opportunity to earn revenue on Facebook in this instance. But in some cases, we've also worked, I think, with Mr. Beast, and you may want to check with my uh, my amazing department to give you the exact details, but essentially work with them to also drive the content across multiple countries in different languages as well. So we're actually translating and translating their product as well, which is obviously a really powerful thing. And again, not something that can be taken lightly because there's a lot of work involved in that. It's not just taking you know an edited piece and, and editing it, sorry, to another language. You've got to make sure it's going to look come over well, it's going to look right, it's going to translate, excuse the pun, correctly into that language and also the time and money and effort involved in that as well. So so we, we go deep with these guys if we think there's an opportunity for them to maximize their potential. And so that that decision is then driven by your platform, your AI software. And you know, we, we know you're not technical, so we won't ask you to get into specifics <laughs> there, but it's those decisions are driven. Yeah, it is. I mean, look, you know, the truth of the matter is is, you know, we're not charity and um and neither, and neither are creators. Everybody's, you know, these guys and guys and girls and you know they're operating in a way that they it's a business so in the same way we want to make sure that anybody we work with we can give them the maximum opportunity to build their revenue so there are occasions we talk to creators and we put them through our ai and tech and it comes out the other end and it's like look you know i either more than likely they're already maximizing the best they can out of their content already on facebook doesn't happen very often but because of this conversation we had previously about you know, how hard it is to actually crack that code. But sometimes it's a case of, you know, maybe they're not producing enough content, maybe the content just doesn't work for Facebook, let's be honest, sometimes things don't. So the AI tech is really informed early doors in our process to make sure that we know that we can give everything we're putting into that crate is going to, A, going to give us opportunity to work with them better, build their brand, and obviously both benefit monetarily from that. Let's be honest, that's what it's about, right? How can we build a better stream and help them go bigger? That's what's key. So once we've done that, it then continues moving forward. So we use our tech AI, the data points we've gathered over many years. And again, you know, I think it's really important to talk about the back of the people that work the back end. Quite often, we always talk about tech and we always talk about data and everything else. And of course, it's really powerful, but it's a bit like saying, you know, you can't have, you know, McLaren F1's fantastic motor, but without Lewis Hamilton, what's it going to do? It's not going to go anywhere. Is it? So, you know, we have some amazing people behind the scenes doing that. And as I say, you know, hand editing up to 100 times per video to make sure that this video works and, and maximizes its potential, which is huge. And then, of course, all the content management and community management and God knows acquisitions that goes in the background. So, you know, we are investing in these people sometimes up to $100,000, $200,000 in a month plus all the, including all the people behind the scenes working the tech and data just to start this, just to kickstart this channel. So we have to make sure that, you know, a bit like a record company to use that analogy earlier, that, you know, we're, we're invested 100% into these people to make sure we drive their business. Speaking about that relationship aspect, which uh, you know and love, then are these, are these creators coming to you or are you sensing an opportunity, presenting a case and then going, hey, PewDiePie, we think you can do this, this, and this based on our our research. Are you interested in working with us? Uh, what's the best answer to that? The answer is the one you don't want to hear. Both, um, <laughs> you know. But obviously, you know, if you if you take myself, I've launched the part of the part of launching in the UK and Ireland uh, and the Nordics, but mainly the UK and Ireland moment. In terms of when I joined last October, there was like three people in my team. We're now like fifteen. Uh, you know, we had a maybe 10, 12 creators, we've now got 50, 60. So obviously when you're doing that, you have, it's more external outreach because people you know, use Jelly Smack, um, don't know who you are, I haven't seen you. But as time has gone on, you know, 
done a couple of interviews, put some PR out there, met people word of mouth, etc. More people do come to us now and say, look, we understand what you do. We really like it. And, you know, quite often we've reached out to people and they're like, well, you know, I'm not really sure, you know, what can happen here. Oh, I'll give it a go myself. And then I would say nine times out of 10, they come back six months later and say, actually, could you give Facebook a go for me, please? Because we can't do anything with it. Yeah, it's interesting that you take the the, um, the sort of record label angle, I think, especially because that's diminishing <laughs> uh, for actual record labels. But um, I mean, obviously, Sam and I are creators uh, putting together this, this podcast, uh, but this is the sort of thing that we've never gone into, really. And yes, we have data points for various different things because obviously, you know, we're, we're techies running a podcast. So, you know, we pick up data points. But I, I am interested in like, you know, there's going to be other people listening to this show who are wanting to promote, you know, their startup. They're wanting to promote, um, you know, content that they're creating. Uh, how, how does one who's maybe not done this before or hasn't reached like a certain level of fame, how, how do they get involved with this and you know it, it feels like it's a lot of um there's a lot to in, a lot of investment money wise potentially for a creator to get involved in something like this you know it always feels very scary getting into that world because you might you, you know you, you're not sure whether you're going to get the return on investments it's not really about you having to be famous or anything it's about you having a story or being interesting or essentially you know it goes back to uh, the record label analogy, which I do think fits, although I, I take your point, what you said earlier, but I think the actual philosophy of speaking to people, artists, somebody who creates something quite interesting and, and um, for other people that find it very interesting, that want to that want to engage with it. And um, that's what we do, you know, and uh, that's why, for example, the Rolling Stones are still going and probably when they first come out, I bet you a lot of people probably thought, well, I'm not really sure. Beatles famously blown out many times, right? But it's a case of longevity and it's about it's a quality content that people want to watch and maybe people didn't think you did and i think that's key what we do so you get you know and again in terms of investment they've already invested in their own channel they don't have to invest in the other channels we're doing it for them that's the whole point so so for us what we're doing is we're going to you and again using the your your business analogy that I, you know i'm taking your business going to australia setting it up you haven't got to spend anything you've just got to do what you're already doing i'm actually going to do all the work for you i'm going to build your business your office infrastructure uh marketing pr you know acquisition whatever it takes to drive you to earn you money because let's face it i want to i want to take a percentage of that but i'm getting a percentage of something that you've had that we've built together but essentially is yours so it's a tried and tested method that you've spotted is already working and you're saying right how can we adapt that to new markets new platforms new audiences or it's working uh, to your point it's trying to test and working on that platform it's working on its TikTok. it's working on instagram it's working on youtube but it's not working on say instagram to comps or it's not working from youtube to facebook why isn't it well we're the experts and, and then i tell you what we think we can actually make it work for you and it's and, and there's no cost to you if, if anything we're we're down on the deal at the beginning anything up to a hundred two hundred thousand dollars in the first sort of one or two months because of the effort and time and and physical money as well that we put into it to drive that business and then it, and then to hand it over. But that's why it's a contract. We want, we want to work with you over a period of time because we're not going to go and I'm not going to set your business up in Australia and go, there you go, here guys, see you later. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to want to, I need to recoup, I need to recoup my investment. And that's why I'm saying about the record label. See, that's where it, that's where the analogy is. I'm, I'm investing in you, going to build you, going to make you great, but I do need that money back. 
<laughs> I mean, no, it's not it's not a philanthropic organization you know? it's like you know not like that anyway. we, we do give a lot of money to charity and stuff but not that much <laughs> so what is it that you do then what's your job oh god i just try to look good don't i you know um <laughs> I, I to be honest and i mean that in, in i mean that in a joke but actually to be honest with you um it's a bit self-effacing as well because i've actually got a really good team and what i think my what i do my success is i've actually within reason and there's i mean i started with a great team to start with a great foundation of a team but i've grown a really good vibrant dynamic team and i will take credit for that but i won't i can't take credit for how clever they are and how good they are and how driven and motivated they are and i think that you know by having that it feeds further out because we have a success team that look after creators and our creators generally are very happy and feel looked after because we have that account management element where we're available 24 7 pretty much and that's born by that. We have an amazing people going out there and talking to the creators and making them feel, making them understand how trusted we are with them and how we can look after them. And we have amazing, uh, amazing people across marketing and PR and everything else, as you probably know already. So, you know, that's what I do: putting together a really good, dynamic, commercially viable but empathetic team. You know, and hopefully managing them to a stage that they enjoy working at least most of the time. But again, okay, you know, I'm also aware that these people are far cleverer than me. You know, there's amazing tech people, amazing. Uh, sales sales people amazing account managers amazing uh marketeers I and mean, it's all far better at their individual product line than me i couldn't do as good as that but what i but i recognize that and i just like to think what i'm good at is knowing who's better at what where and when and where to put them so let's go back a bit then so how did you get to this point i mean where what, what did what did you study uh well i actually trained to be a building surveyor ah it's a natural progression it is it really is yeah <laughs> if you will um let me sort of meander a little bit i think You'll, you'll, you'll see. Oh, we've got the time. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so essentially, I started out. My dad, my dad, God bless himself, passed away. Now, my mum had a building business. I wanted to be in building. Everyone wants to follow their dad, right? Uh, I loved it, but I loved being on the site with the lads, and I thought that's what life would always be. You know, down the site. You know, pint at lunchtime, half a day on, on uh, drinking on Friday, get paid, and everyone's a winner, right? Is this where the woodwork thing comes from? You, you wanted to be a chippy? Yes, exactly. Yeah, God, I couldn't even do. That. I couldn't do anything else as a labourer. I thought that was a dream, you know. You know <laughs> leaning out, leaning out the thing. Anyway, but my so my mum and dad were like, "Well, no, if you're going to do this, you've got to do it properly. So you need to be a surveyor." So um, I, I trained to be a building surveyor for four years and everything else, and it was great. I, you know, I, I did it. I did the whole thing of getting in half an hour early, making tea, making coffee, going to get the sandwiches, feeding the meter for the MD when he's rocked up in his Rolls Royce in Pall Mall. You know, all the menial stuff, and and then uh, on top of that, I'd then be shipped out and doing schedules of dilapidations for buildings, being charged out three hundred pound an hour and getting paid like two hundred pound a month, right? So, <laughs> so, um, but I knew all that anyway. While this was happening, I turned about seventeen, eighteen, started working in this bar in New Morden, which doesn't sound very glamorous, but it was called Renoirs. And uh, if anybody listens to this, which they might well do, who are over the age of forty, they'll know I'm talking about. I lived in that area. It was like 400 people Friday night, 400 people Saturday night, 400 people Sunday night. And it was just like somebody once said, it was like going to a beaver in, in Surrey, right? And in there, there was a guy called Steve Tindall who used to work at this advertising agency and he looked at the best time of the life. He was, he was buzzing. He was having a great time. And I thought, I want that. So uh, he put me into a few meetings, met a few people. And uh, I've said to my dad, after they spent all this money, looked after me, I went, I'm going to go into advertising. <laughs> Uh, and, and that's what I did. So I started out in 96 as um, a TV, uh, working in selling TV for LWT. That's how long ago it was. And, um, and then went into strategic plan and buying for 
uh, Sony BMG and Warner Music launched Pure Garage, Hardcore, you know, Score, Big Hits, and God knows many other things. And uh, and then from 2000, went into digital, uh, launched uh, part of the launch team for AdLink, which was then going 24-7 Real Media. So we launched, helped launch like Auto Trader, LastMinute.com, Independent on the Line. Then I got headhunted to go to Fish 4, same thing for that. And then all the way through, worked at Times Digital, launching that business for them. GeekNet into the UK, which you might be familiar with, SourceForge mm. uh, and GeekNet as well. Yeah, so I launched them into the UK, part of the second man in for that. So I've been around startup scale-ups for a long, long time, outdoor digital radio. But I really took home my TV in the TV buying and selling, which was, uh, you know, interesting. I think we threw, I tell you, threw a bloke in a skip once, a rival agency in a skip once, which is terrible, isn't it? But, but, um, <laughs> hang on, hang on, we're going to have to focus on some of these things. So this is this is LWT, London Weekend Television. doesn't exist anymore, does it, or does it? It doesn't, no, no, it doesn't. That was the days of the, we still had Heartbeat uh, on Sunday, and uh, I think it was uh, Coronation Street Friday night, and then there was like uh, Blind Day and that sort of stuff. And oh, I tell you, we had SMTV and CD UK was still on as well. And these are all classic things from the nineties that I remember. They really were, yeah. But it was a very aggressive time then. I mean, that was still like the mid nineties, and you would have people phoning you up from advertising agencies wanting to, you know, wanting to move airtime or negotiate airtime, and and generally like not very often, but it does happen. They'd even get a black cab downstairs and you'd end up like, I mean, I was on like £10,400 a year or something, right? And you're downstairs like having, you know, people fronting you and stuff as if it's their money, you know? Wow. And swearing at your phone to phone and then people crying and it was just it was horrendous. Yeah, very aggressive. But this is, so, th- so th- this level, uh, th- this role that you're doing is is literally selling airtime. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But I think what it, and then I'm running to plan of buying and we worked at this agency where, like I say, we worked for the music industry and we were in the middle of, and that was the days of Soho, Dean Street and Zillies. I don't even remember the Zillies, but, and, um, and everybody was drinking and, and having fun and lots of lunches and stuff. And again, I'm still thinking, this is a great, I'm so glad I left <laughs> building surveying. It's fantastic. And uh, yeah, I remember walking down the road and my boss went, there's that guy from the rival agency that looks after whatever it was. And we just followed him blindly. Picked it, ran it, ran it like Grain Jill, run a guy down a road, picked him up from a skip. It was terrible. Um, I mean, about 15 years later, I bumped into him in a wine bar and we we're just chatting. You know, I was like, oh, do you remember when I threw you in a skip? He went, yeah. And it was quite normal. You know, it was, wasn't unusual. But, you know, I think the point is, is that, you know, I spent a lot of time across many different, uh, you know, and then I lived in Dubai for three years, working in the luxury market. Uh, and that's when I first started working with creators, actually. Uh, you know, driving multi channel product commercialization with creators with the luxury industry with ferrari and bentley and things like this and richard meal rolex and putting together things and making sure we're working with creators and building stories around them and stuff like that so that 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 stuff that you're talking about there in terms of building things and putting stories around it that feels more like the sort of um advertising you'd see on say like Mad Men, where actually they're, they're, you're building the advert content and figuring out how you're going to sell it rather. So that, that's an evolution away from the, we're just selling you some space here between the TV program to sell you advertise to, so you can sell your product. That's now on the other side of it. So you've moved from the selling the space to actually creating the content then, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm working, working up working for a local business called Brownbook, which is uh, working for um, these amazing uh, twins called Ahmed and Rashid bin Shabib. And um they're incredible visionaries and a uh, very big family in the, in the UAE. And, uh, you know, we were in the, I've seen it just opened my eyes. I mean, I was very lucky to be reporting to these guys and learning, but because of this, we had access to all these amazing brands and doing a lot of work with them. And yeah, it was building stories around creators and 
uh, whether it be a photo photo shoot and content or bigger picture stuff across multiple channels. And we did stuff with like Middle East had talent and X Factor and things like that as well. But I think, you know, for me, brand, I think it's just interesting because I think everything's a brand, it, you, know, if, you know, product plus personality equals brand, right? So, you know, for me, it's, I always looked at creators or social media or influencer and I never looked at it as being anything different other than, to your point, an extension of a media or or a brand opportunity. I mean, I always joke and say, if you ever look at the old, look on YouTube for, for people who wasn't old enough and you see Brute being advertised by Kevin Keegan and Henry Cooper and Henry Cooper appears behind Kevin Keegan on the mirror, you know, it's a bit, <laughs> looks a bit strange. But the thing is, that's no different really now, is it, to what, what they're doing now. It's just on, it's on ITV or whatever. It's just not on Instagram, but it's the same thing. It's, two guys showing like pretending they they live the lifestyle wearing brute which we know they don't and it's a natural just a natural evolution i think you know what was there something in particular that you learned in terms of how to sell a product from from that that time then i think it was about probably the way i'm talking so much people wouldn't probably won't won't agree won't, won't laugh at this but i think it's about individualizing people listening to people empathizing and being a bit of a chameleon, to be honest, I think we all joke about sort of, uh, you know, ABC always be closing and, you know, watching this. I mean, everybody, everybody wants to be, everybody thinks that's what you need to be to be a salesman. And unfortunately, or fortunately, should I say for me, maybe that's what majority of people still do. And I just tend to work with what I have in front of me and I tend to behave in a manner. And sometimes people can mistakenly see, think, think that I'm talking in a funny way or like being a bit sort of less than professional sometimes or maybe too professional other times and it's just who's in front of you it's the same as you need to understand what they're about what they're interested in what they want to talk about what what clicks their button if you like you know and it's not always the same thing the same as some people want a really deep dive into why they want to do something some people want to do it over a coffee and there's many other options in between and if you just always do one option all the time then you're not understanding the right well it's it's such an interesting world i mean you know Mad Men wouldn't have been as popular as it was if it wasn't as fascinating. It's not just the fact of, uh, you know, a good script or whatever, but the actual story of, you know, what was going on there was fascinating. And I think for anyone who's tried to create their own content or tried to have a social media presence, you know, you have a, an interpretation of, you know, how how do you sell something? How do you get something out in, in front of people? And it's, it strikes me that there's sort of, there's two roles to this based on on what you're telling me one is the sales opportunity of like actually selling to the client which again you saw in mad men of like we want to win your business so that we can sell your product and then the other thing is okay we've got that now we actually need to create the creative to sell the product and it's only going to work if the creative is good enough so there's there's two distinct things there i guess yeah i mean i've never you know funny enough i've never thought so deep into it until like recently and actually i think yeah, I mean, I've often been, especially when I was at AdLink and potentially at Times, for example, I was definitely in that middle bit where I'm selling to a brand and also selling to the channel, for example. So I did a deal with Vodafone on lastminute.com, which was for 
which is many years ago now. And that was like having to like sell into last minute why it's a great idea to have Vodafone give them money, right? Which sounds mad, right? Then having to go to Vodafone and say, look, it'd be a really great idea if you give them money for this and why. And I'm just thinking to myself sometime again, like, you're both benefiting. So, but I obviously couldn't talk to either of both of them in the same way. I had to like make, find out what the benefits to both were and everything else. And then obviously then put together a creative idea that makes them both very happy. So, yeah, it, it, it can be very difficult, but then sometimes it can be really easy because quite often, you know, especially in the luxury area, you've only got certain areas you can manoeuvre because there's so many areas you can't, such as typeface, colouring, um, icons, and, the, and pictures, images, and everything else. You get locked really, really closely into what you can do with them. You can't be as creative necessarily. And again, you know, with records, it's more about, when we were doing those, it was majority, majority TV and radio at the time, a little bit of outdoor, depending on where it is. But that was being creative with not necessarily look and feel, but sound and regionality. So, you know, like hardcore, you know, the score was always going to be a London and South South targeting, whereby, uh, sorry, Street Vibes was going to be London and South, and then hardcore, you know, the score would be Midlands and North, you know, but you'd buy a whole Channel 4 episode and split it because that's where you have to be clever. So it's about strategizing, understanding what your audience wants and where to put it and how best to be efficient. You know, because it all drives, for me, everything always goes back to efficiency, whether it's product, whether it's service, whether it's your team, whether it's delivery, you know, it's about being the most efficient product you can be. You're always talking about Webflow. So (laughs) what is Webflow? Well, Webflow is a platform completely online completely in the browser that allows you to build websites using no code, zero code. I mean, it it has the potential to build low code websites, that's low code, but there's real power in the no code way of building websites. I don't know, it's fantastic. A lot of designers, I would say, have actually built their careers off of Webflow, which is really powerful really, because a lot of them didn't, weren't able to offer this kind of service. So designers are picking up Webflow and building their whole careers, being able to design a website and then being able to actually implement it and earn a great living off of building Webflow websites. So you want to start up a, a new company or and bought your domain name through namecheap.com, <laughs> affiliate link down below in the description, then you can link that to a Webflow web fly, website and um, start designing and start building a website with absolutely no code. And they do also have a templating library as well. So you can go out and buy a template to get started. And my first Webflow website was built, I kid you not, four hours. So if you want to uh, code along with Sam, then you can click the affiliate link that we have in our description for this episode, wherever you're listening to it. Or you can head over to thattech.show and take a look at the affiliate links there and click through to Webflow. And by doing that, you're going to be giving something back to That Tech Show because we get a little bit of kickback when you click that button. There you go. No excuses. It it sounds like there's, there's definitely constraints you've got to work within then. Um, you know, you can't just go and completely demolish a brand to create something brand new, really. By the sounds of it, you've, you've kind of got to work within certain constraints. Is that right? Mostly. Most times, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's going to be exceptions. Somebody, there'll be somebody out there who goes, well, no, you don't, because, you know, so-and-so kind of me and said, you have carte blanche. And of course you get that. But, you know, I'm talking about, like, if I'm talking to Hermes, 
I know I may just want to do a deal or I'm talking to Coca-Cola or I'm talking to Bentley or I'm talking to that, that, that or Red Bull or something like that. They've got certain branding already, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you can't, you've got to use this, this Pantone if you're doing, or you've got to use this icon or you can, or they don't like to be associated with this. Or if you wanted to go really extreme and look at people like, um, like Dior or um, Chanel, you know, like if you took say print advertising as a prime example, Oh no, they can't be. They have to be the first two pages. It can only ever be a gatefold sleeve. It can't be next to another brand. It can't be next to that type of brand. It has to be this. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, uh, and, and again, for me, I, I was always, I never understood why people didn't buy the inside back cover more because everybody always reads through and opens it and then shuts it, right? But yeah, the inside back covers probably were, probably costs about a third, a third of what the outside back cover is, but everyone wants the outside back cover. But where's the value, you know? That's because that's how my brain will be working. I can buy three. I could buy three inside back covers, one outside back cover in three amazing magazines, and probably get better value. Just a quick one on that. I was I was working at uh, Condé Nast, and someone in the branding team went went and produced. Remember, you know those popper things that you stick on the back of your phone to help you hold it. Yes. So someone went away and got a bunch of those created with uh, Condé Nast kind of printed on them, and they completely shut. They obviously had a bunch printed because there were a few floating around, but they kind of completely shut down the whole operation because it was printed on plastic and they don't <laughs> won't have their brand they won't have their name on plastic and it's just you know these these specific um requirements uh, uh, you know it, it doesn't surprise me that there, there's uh yeah parameters work with them but do you know what the funny thing is it's how my brain works right so i'd be going i'd be having a conversation with and I'm saying deal for sake of it might not be them by the way just in case it's some sort of legal scenario right? but I, sort of, I might be talking to you know Dior and they're like, oh no, we no, there's no way we can be next to that brand. We have to be here, and we and like, you know, I've I've heard instances where maybe they then, you know, there's been luxury brands that have opened a magazine and they're next door to a McDonald's advert or something, and they're absolutely you know appalled. But then you'll drive down the road, Shadeside Road, for example, in this instance. I remember going down there in a cab, and you're looking around, and I'm like, oh my god, like, and you see this like whole line of outdoor six sheets equipment, but posted six sheets, and for Van Cleef, I think it was from memory. And it's and all the way down the side of the road, and it's right next to all these like you know like McDonald's, like strip of like McDonald's and KFC. And so I'm thinking, you would never have that in any other area. You would not be happy with that, but you're quite happy with that. And so, so again, I think it's quite interesting how people are, are happy to bend the rules if they think it works for them in that particular instance. But generally, I think it looked worse because actually, I'm seeing it. More people are seeing it, and its associations there. If it's in, if it's in a page, it probably doesn't have the same association. I bet you're you're one of the only ones, or or sort of people in the industry, are the only ones who are noticing that. I bet I bet the everyday person just doesn't really think about it, or it's just so subliminal, you know. Just because uh, oh no, it was Vogue actually, not Condé Nast, it was actually Vogue on plastic. I bet people wouldn't even care. They're more concerned about their little popper thing on the back of their phone. <laughs> but you know what the interesting thing is, right? Is I'm a big fan of you know I do sweat the small stuff. My wife says that all the time. You know, I, I actually think the small things are what make the difference. You know, anybody can look, anybody can pinpoint something that's big. And that's another thing I always look at, you know, like going right back to what do I do? I like to think that I do what I've learned or do things that I think you should do, having seen many, many managers over many, many years do things that I don't believe are particularly very good leadership, poor management. And I try to be the manager that I always wanted somebody to manage me like. Just learning from other people's mistakes, I guess, then. Yeah, I you know I I I, I always think that you I always want to put people's heads above the parapet. I always want to like champion people. I always want to give people a bit of a leg up. I always think you know bring people up. You know, and I spent I don't know what it's like with maybe where you guys have worked, but I've certainly seen 
90 percent of people i work with or either you know thought good management was oh you've got a problem this all go down the pub you know certainly a bit of that <laughs> yeah but you know what i mean it's no like it's no like individual thought process you know a bit of empathy it's understand emotional intelligence going on you must you must all want to drink then you know or people like i mentioned previously you know want to want to keep you away keep you down you know don't want to you know and, and i'm just so against all that i just think like you know put I, I have so many meetings where I have people, my team on the meetings, and the first thing I do is go, I've got the intelligent people with me. I've got people who know more about this business than I do, more about this particular area of the business than I do, so that's why I brought me in. You know, I have no problem with that, and I don't see why anybody should, but so many people still do, I think. Where, where did that come from for you? When, when did you sort of adopt that technique? Uh, probably last four or five years, to be honest with you, because I think you've got to, and don't, you know, I'm, I'm not self-assured, and, and I don't mean to be arrogant, but I think you've got to feel a bit better about yourself. And I started taking coaching about five years ago and I started reading more books and, you know, doing, looking deeper into myself and what it's all about and, you know, where I'm going wrong and understanding it and getting mentors and all this sort of thing and trying to put it all together. And I've come out the other side of it, feeling a lot more happy about myself and confident about myself and actually realizing that, that, you know, that's really important to allow people to feel confident about yourself and not be afraid of giving other people kudos and, and um putting people in uh, putting people ahead of yourself and that's management it's about growing people isn't it you're managing people you're growing people you're making people better making them better people better opportunities if they don't take them that's their trouble probably i think this is uh, you know we, we've heard from speaking to many people this seems to be a thing that uh, people come across probably they have to be at least in their 30s before they get over their ego from the 20s before they start thinking about other people <laughs> um, yeah yeah was there was there a particular trigger that led you to that point of going i need some coaching i need some help i suppose well I, uh, yeah i think probably i mean i've always suffered from anxiety and stuff since i was 21 so i've always had on and off seen you know i don't mind talking about it really care. I've, I've seen people on and off about how to deal with anxiety depression god knows what else right i've always had that in the background anyway so i've always understood self-help but i've never had a problem with it it's just the industry i was in for a long time you're around everyone's especially in the early part of that everyone's aggressive everyone's a man's man you know not well you know and you just looked up and everybody you know the progression was always sales exec senior sales sales manager right so therefore you then promote loads of people the only way you're ever going to move forward in these jobs is going to be as a manager, which means you outgrow people. So there's many, many people out there that have just put you put into management positions that don't know how to manage. And of course, you get managed by them and you see it and then you think that's how you manage. And I think I just broke away from that. I think going to Dubai was a great thing for, for me because it separated me a little bit from where I was. And I started seeing things. I've done a lot of consulting work out there, working with various different people, helping them grow. And I just went, you know what? I know what I'm good at. I just know that I'm you know, I'm a, I can be, a, I'm, a, I'm a good person, I'm a good leader, I'm a good this, that, and the other. And especially if I look at what other people do, and I often, I always take responsibility. I've often done that anyway in my personal life. I'm always, I, I always organize everything. I can't let anybody else do that. I'm, I'm sort of a control freak like that. But equally at the same time, I always want other people to enjoy themselves. I want other people to be the best they can be. And I know it just suits me as an individual. So, but I never had the confidence to go, do you know what, I'm actually going to, manage and behave in that manner because you always think you have to behave in a way that other people want to behave so you can get on you know and it takes someone to tell you that actually peers or people people that you trust people you mentor people i've got very good friends of mine that are very successful all over a period of time you literally have to go up to them and say like what do you reckon be honest and if they tell you or tell you the same thing individually then you've got to take take note of that right yeah uh, and that's when i thought do you know what i'm just going to be myself now 
And again, we made a joke about it earlier, but that's probably why the PR guys are probably still listening somewhere, right? Because, <laughs> because you know, and I'm doing a presentation in front of like 60 or 70 people on Monday, and I know that I'm sure there'll be people going, oh, please, please, please say that slide. Don't miss that slide. But, but the thing is, is like, I can't, I have to be true. I'm 48 now. I have to be true to myself, right? I can't be forever not being myself. And I know being myself is, be- is the best version of me and will be the best for the business, the best for my team. And, and at some stage, you've got to look yourself in the mirror and go, I'm actually good at what I do. And, and I'm only going to be the best I can be at what I do if I can be myself. And it's the same as we look at sport. Like, you can't have people in sport going, oh, well, no, like Gaza couldn't go, well, I don't really, I'm not going to dribble anymore because, um, you know, I'm not sure if I should do that because people might be upset with it. He went and did it, didn't he? Beckham, I'm not comparing myself to that, but you get my point, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's taking that influence from, you know, personalities i suppose yeah it is yeah be the best version of yourself and walk away and be proud about it it's no point looking back and, and going well you know i did it for other people you've got to do it yourself right but you've got to have the confidence to do that yeah i mean i've i've had my own battles with uh, anxiety and depression i'm i'm curious whether you know especially to uh, to really lay on the stereotype that you mentioned earlier being uh, from east london and you know the building site and all of that sort of stuff did you feel like you had to hide some of that anxiety and depression you know what joe yeah do you know what's funny actually right and that's absolutely true i'll tell you a story right so i remember coming back from the media week awards right it's the first time i've ever been to it and i thought it was amazing i'd like a, I'd like a penguin suit and all that and i thought oh, i was amazing oh, yeah. and um the next day i was walking home and the pavement just came up the floor right it just felt like it was coming up and it wasn't obviously but it felt like it was like really it felt really dizzy and funny Went to bed and thought, oh, maybe it's a hangover or something. Woke up next day and I, could, I got out of bed and I was all dizzy anyway. This went on for ages. And didn't tell anyone because I was thinking, oh, you've been stupid, you know. Went on for like weeks. And then um, it, then I'd have a couple of drinks and I felt fine again. And obviously it's because I relaxed, right? But I didn't know that at the time. And um, in, eventually I went to go and see a sort of doctor. And doctor said, I'll go and see therapist or whatever it was. Um, and she told me what it was, right? And she said, you're anxious, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And it was like a whole weight had been taken off me. And I literally felt like nine stone, right? I felt amazing. But she said, be careful tomorrow. It'll come back again. It did. And then I went to see the doctor and the doctor gave me Prozac. Right? Mm. And it was at the time in addition Prozac everywhere. And <laughs> it was like, a, it was an answer to everything. Oh, you've got this. Have some Prozac. Yeah. Like sweets, Prozac for everybody. <laughs> exactly. And it, it was, right? And, uh, and I didn't know at the time. So, and it said, oh, it takes two weeks to kick in this system. So I started taking it. And I was out of my mates, and this is it's a long way to get around to it, but you'll see where I'm coming now. And we were out, and bear in mind, we were out four nights a week. And we, you know, we're Jack the Lads doing a bit of pieces where we do when you're 19, 20, 21, or whatever. And I just I had a few drinks, and I don't know why, but my mate, Heesman, Andy Heesman, he just turned around and he said, Oh, you're all right, Joe. And I told him, and he went, Yeah, I've been having that for years. He goes, Get rid of it. I went, What? He went, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, get rid of them Prozac. Don't take them. They're terrible. Right? And it just turned out he'd been suffering from this for like two or three years as well. But we, and we've been going out with each other, drinking, hanging out with each other. He was my hairdresser. Like, literally, never knew. And we never, and then it was just, it was strange. Yeah, you didn't, you just don't talk to each other about that. So, um, but ever since then, I've never really had a problem. I've never had a problem crying in front of people and everyone. Because so for me, I don't think, I don't see it as a sign of weakness at all. I see it as a sign of strength. And actually, if I may take this time to turn around and say the other way is one of the reasons I love working just May is because I, you know, because they are so, you know, forward thinking and actually to the extent that you make you feel comfortable enough that I have on the odd occasion, once or twice only in like nine months or whatever it is, turn around and say, look, you know, you know, Harry, uh, 
not fully 100% today. I'm just going to do my, I'm just going to do the meetings, but I need a couple of like a little bit of time where I can sort of meditate and get myself out of, out of the zone because I'm feeling really anxious. And it's like, no problem. Take time, you know. I know how to do it. But if I don't deal with it, it's going to snowball. But if you just give me a couple of, give me a couple of hours, go for a walk, chill out, have a cup of tea or whatever, you know, and, and I can deal with it. It's just, just need to get that stress out. And I think you've got to be honest with yourself. I think that's so important. I mean, you know, for me, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm 35, so I, I haven't got a career quite as long as you at this point, but. Oh, don't do that. To <laughs> <me>. <laughs> but, uh, but not far behind. There we go. I've made up for it. Yeah. But, the, yeah. <laughs> but what I have to say is in, in sort of 15 years, I guess, of, of, of a professional life, I've only really seen the mental health side of things talked about in the last five years. And, you know, you know, all of the stuff we've talked about so far on the show as well, aside from, aside from the, the mental health thing is, you know, these are quite stressful jobs that we're doing. They're quite, they're quite important. They're, you know, they're basically the, the sort of, um, B to C world, I suppose, is is keeping everything. Um, sorry, B to B world of keeping everything running behind the scenes to a large degree. You know, they can be quite stressful, and I have seen in my time, especially during some some big, you know, significant ev- events like mergers and things that have happened in companies I've been part of. I've seen suicides occur, um, and that's not something I don't think I've, I've I don't think I've spoken about that on the show before. But um, you know. Having since gone through all of this sort of anxiety, depression and stuff like that myself, I think it's so important that people are able to be open and talk about the mental health and the side effects of the stress, because the fact that it can build up and it can build up, that that's the extreme of what it can lead to. And I, I think it's really important that people are open enough to talk about it. I also think it's a, there's a there's a toxic masculinity thing in there as well. You know, we were talking about the uh, uh, the, the stereotype that you, you you had before there of uh, the East London side of things, East London sales. Um, huh. That feels like you know. I, I mean, I, I've got my own toxic masculinity issues from Liverpool, but I think there's a, there's a certain thing in there of like you are supposed to be a man. You don't cry. You are you know uh, you are strong, etc. We solve things by going for a drink, and I think it's it's good that people seem to be moving away from that. I guess. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, I think it's down to individuals. I mean, there are times when going to drink works. I mean, I, um, I think certainly during COVID times, which I hate, and uh, far some of, yeah, it's a, that's a story, that's probably a podcast on its own, right? But, <laughs> you know, when you're working from home all the time, I think ha- in a strange way, I think stopping and having half a lager and then having dinner was that I finished work, now I'm at home, even though you're at home all the time. And I think sometimes it can do. You have a, you know, it's just whether you, I think it's having three, four, five, ten drinks every night. You know, again, like very, my best friend for many, many years passed away through alcoholism a couple of years ago. I had two other friends of mine um, committed suicide in the last five years. And another friend of mine, unfortunately, oh my God, like horrendous, got hit by a train completely by accident. So I've, I, you know, my dad, and my dad passed away at 51. So I've, I've had quite a lot in, in a short period of time myself. And, you know, for me, it's about looking, trying to find the best out of things, the best out of where you are, look at what you have, be grateful for stuff, and just taking each day a little bit as well. You know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a terrible planner. And by, by that, I mean, I plan everything. You know, I have an A, B, and C for everything. Like, we're going on holiday in 17, 16 days, right? And I have already have all our restaurants booked by the concierge. I know where we're going for dinner every night. I wish I was that organized. You know, um, I, I've got I've got the I've got the cars picking us up there and at the hotel booked already sorted. I have it all done already. That's how my and I've already but my brain works. I like planning. I like to know where I'm going, what I'm doing. But I think that has many connotations in a good sense. But I think 
sometimes and you do need to go do you know what um let's be a bit what's happening tonight let's not worry about it let's just have a drink or let's watch some tv or let's go for a walk and i think that's what i do struggle with a little bit and actually golf was the biggest thing for me that i didn't realize was the biggest help and and it's just for me because i when i was especially i took up golf in dubai and i think actually that's another thing as well that really got it into me to think about stuff because in that four, three, four, well, five hours when you first start, right? But but like mm. three or four hours of your day, you haven't got your phone on you because it has to be off. You, and you only think about what you're doing that moment. And it wasn't until, because obviously in Dubai, I could play every week and in the UK, it's very much more difficult. Coming back to the UK, I suddenly realized how good that was for me because I didn't think about anything else because I just thought about what I was doing for that four hours. And that's such a mindfulness, what they call mindfulness now, right? It's just not thinking about them. Yeah, I think it's useful to have those sort of mechanisms you can rely on to give you that break. I, I mean, I think it's interesting as well. You talked about like taking breaks from things, and I think it's um, it's important to be able to recognise that you can actually step away from something, and the world is maybe not going to fall apart, um, which is is true in the most. I think so there's certain things that you can't completely drop. I guess. No, I think it's <laughs> uh, look. I, I think I think also it's about management, right? It's a really great podcast. I um, don't know if you've ever heard of him, Jocko Willink. He, 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 he's done a lot of stuff with Tim Ferriss, right? And he's an, he's an ex-Navy SEAL. Um, he's like, he trains the Navy SEALs or did. And uh, he, he's, podcast, he's taken his learnings from Navy SEALs into corporate life, right? But he talks about many things. But he's talk, one of the things he talks about is how to uh, deal with problems. And essentially, it's like you deal, with the, you deal with the most important one first, get rid of it, then the next one, then the next one. Don't try not to fight on multiple, multiple fronts because if you do, you will lose that battle. And I think that's what I try to do firstly. Secondly, I don't I don't look at my day. I never have actually looked at it as a nine to five. I look at it as I wake up and I go to bed and I and I do what I need to do in that period of time based on based on that um thought process. So so like what do I need to get out of the way? So it might be seven in the morning, I smash out ten emails and then I might go for a walk. Or if I know, you know, I'm doing something this evening, I'll do a load of stuff for beforehand, or I might get up earlier, or I know actually sometimes there's certain things you don't need to do on a Friday that you can do on a Sunday. So you just do it on the Sunday. You know, my wife is away traveling she, for business or something and I know I'm sitting at home, so I'll do it then. I don't need to do it on Friday. You know, so I, I work a seven-day week and I think think ahead seven-day, plan seven-day, but I also allow myself get rid of the important stuff and then do I need to do that for now or can I do that later? And then when is the best time for me to do that? Because I think we've all been programmed to do a solid eight hour day and then we can stop but my brain's never worked like that and i don't think it's good because i think that i recognize probably three till five is not the best time of day for me i'm better at six in the morning until say two o'clock in the afternoon is when you want me to do some really want to do data or want me to do loads of emails or think about strategic stuff three till five is probably if you want me to think a bit creative or you know be a bit more sort of do a one-to-one or something but if you want me to be switched on mentally like from a data or analytical point of view that's not the best time so that's not when to do a spreadsheet but in the old days you might have to do one then, and you're going to do it really poor and you're not going to do it in a very good way because you're not in that mental state and i think that's the key this is quite unorthodox i suppose in terms of a way of working i mean it's very similar to how i work if i'm honest but obviously you seem to be a better plan than i am <laughs> how do you how do you then transfer that to you know we talked about the 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 team, the people, and building those people up. How do you then transfer that into the management of the people? Do you give them that same ability to to work in the way that makes them comfortable? 
well, we've got to be careful now, we? Because uh, <laughs> my boss, this could be, make or break my, uh, my my bonuses and everything, doesn't it? Um, I mean, look, I, I'm, we have a big conversation. My wife is very successful in her own right, and everything else, and we talk about business as you do, right? And I think one of the things that we're both quite fond of, and one thing I firmly believe in, is what we call freedom in a framework, right? So essentially, you have your KPIs or QBRs or whatever you want to call them. You have your essentially your, your what you have to do by week, by month, by day by quarter and you get given you give your team the responsibility to deliver against that um and then you make sure and then you know just get on with it so you have that framework this is your corporate responsibilities this is your timeline this is what we need you to do and this and this is what you need to deliver but being super um over the top to prove a point if you did all your months working one day and you want to go down the pub or want to lie by the beach you know my, my cleaner comes in we pay her you know a specific amount a day right to come in and clean but i don't care if she does it all in one hour as long as it's a really good job i'm not i don't i don't need to be sitting there going and going like yeah but i haven't got my four hours out of you. you've done an amazing you've done an hour you know and so the only time it comes to problem is obviously if you don't deliver against what your objectives are for your day week month quarter and then and then that becomes a conversation then you go hang on why have you done it and then then you have to start being that horrible person that goes that start putting your performance and stuff like that but i think that if you if you're clear concise you have one-to-ones with people. You have proper KPIs and targets across day, week, month, quarter, and that you are uh, communicating properly. Then you should never get that situation because you cut it off before it becomes a problem anyway. But generally speaking, if you employ the right people, and one of the first things I do is look at personality and whether they will fit the culture, that a type of person that will work. I'm not so bothered about have you got a two-one or a one-one or God knows what else, right? That doesn't. I'm, I don't have that. So. And I've worked across multiple sectors in, uh, in multiple countries, in, in multiple uh, B2C, B2B, and God as well. So, and, and at no stage have I had to have a specific knowledge of anything. It's just a, it's about being commercial. So I like to think that I don't need to have someone in front of me that has 25 years in creator, blah, 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 right? Because it doesn't mean they're going to be good at what they do. It just means they've been sitting in that role for ages, right? So is this person clever, dynamic, curious, ask questions, sits well with the culture? interesting and uh has, has a good ethos and work ethic then fantastic come and join you know um and they'll sit down there you don't if you have someone that can't think for themselves you know has to be spoon fed all the time isn't really motivated just there for the pay packet then again going back to the sport analogy david moyes i'm a west ham fan and i'd be surprised right but um he has this thing what he calls a david moyes mot right and it doesn't matter how good you are you have to fit this certain types of personality criteria and cultural criteria for you to be right for that team. Um, because if you don't, then you're not going to perform the best and the team isn't going to perform the best. And so so it's all about that. So it all goes back. So if you have the right people and you pick well and you have the right people with the right attitude, you can perform that framework, uh, freedom in a framework. And therefore, people are happier, people more content, they feel empowered, they come back, they, they feel that they have ownership of the business and they want to succeed and be part of that success. If you don't behave like that, then you get just automatons who just want to sit there nine till five, grab their hour at lunchtime. And by the way, I've never had an hour at lunchtime in my life, you know. But they want to do it <laughs> apart from apart from in ninety six and ninety eight when I was in TV and I used to be in zillies every day. But that's that's why that's how I tried to do it. And I think that's like a it's a progressive way of thinking about it, though, isn't it? And in my opinion, I think it's the right way to think about it. It's in contrast, direct contrast to, to what we've actually seen Elon Musk tweeting about, about making sure that everybody from Tesla gets back into the office and does their nine to five, actually, um, which was relatively recently. And actually, I saw a, I saw a CEO 
uh, a number of years ago for um, uh, Britain's largest private employer when I worked there. Um, you can look that up. It's an activity podcast. Um, the, uh, <laughs> who, um, you know, at the time said that, you know, I've got no problem with people working from home as long as they do the nine to five in the office first. You know, it, it's, it's very different as an approach. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm a firm believer in being in the office in certain times as well, because I think that... But that's the interaction thing, isn't it? You know, that that's not... A cultural thing. Yeah. It's a cultural thing. But actually, having said that, there is a caveat. I do think that if you're a creative industry and a creative business, then I do think you do need to have people together in a room to be fully creative. But I don't think you need to be in the room every day for five and nine hours. You know? Yeah, well, I don't think it necessarily comes down to like the, you know, you have to be co-located or we're talking about working from home I, don't, I think we're talking about like that you know as you said it, the working from home is a more of a legacy example from pre-covid times <laughs> yes yeah well when you work from home it was like oh yeah yeah exactly <laughs> I had a few yeah, beers yeah, yeah. last night yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah but no i think it's um it's more about like the um the the ways of working and that productivity and as you talked about you know the the splitting things out in over seven days you know that works for you and actually getting the time in and having the the results being the important thing you know it's reflected in that legacy uh, working from home sort of you know but you see if, if if you and again it goes right back to the question you asked about selling how do you sell it's like if you show me anyone who sells under pressure well. Right. If I said to you, you've got to sell that and you've got half an hour to sell it. If we don't sell it by today, we're, 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 you know, we're fucked. You know, and you'll be sweating and anything else. And then you're selling to people and they can feel the stress. They can feel your anxiety. And if you did sell, you've probably sold it at a loss or a very poor price. Right. But if I say to you, I need it for the end of this month, for the end of this week, and you've got a couple of weeks or whatever. Right. And you've got time to negotiate. You've got time to show to have a little dance you've got time to make sure that you get the best deal for both of you and you both walk away happy which is obviously what you always want everyone wants to walk away thinking they've done the best deal then you've got more chance haven't you if you're not if you're not under that stress of course there is sometimes stress it's like the end of the month end of the quarter but generally speaking if they know they've got that week or that month or that quarter you know you can set your ducks up you can get yourself in a position wherever you might have you might knock 10 over in the last week you've got them in that situation i mean just using sales as an example but it could be anything i just feel that you know you take the most important areas first and you split up your quarter and your month and your weeks in the right way so that you can behave and act in a professional manner and actually give yourself an opportunity of course there's always deadlines to like sometimes it's quite often it's from the other side isn't it it's like i really want to have this how much am i going to earn i want the money now but if at least you have some element of control and you actually let okay you're empowering your team to have um, a sense of ownership about their own business. And it makes them feel that they actually own part of that business, which makes them feel they want to work for that business, which makes them feel, obviously I've always gone into every business thinking it's my money, which is probably a bad thing, right? And I treat it like it's my own business and I want to make it the best it can be. And sometimes it can go against me because, you know, I'm sometimes, I've, I've been in I've been in five startups now and there's been a couple of startups when I'm literally going to the founders like, you know, you should be doing this. And like, hang on, it's my money, you know. <laughs> but they do walk away understanding I'm mean, doing it for the good intention. So I want it to be the best it can be. I always want it, I guess I want it to be the best it can be. And I think that if you can empower people to feel like that and push back, but not aggressively, but with considered opinion, why something should change or something else, I think that's a good thing. No, I think that's, that's important, actually. I think that, you know, having that sort of involvement and treating it as your own, that passion is what, what tends to, to drive the success. I think the deadline thing is interesting, though, because that generally doesn't work for me. I uh, will always leave it to the last minute anyway, as Sam knows from our interactions on uh, you know the, the, the back end of this podcast. Um, in fact, I actually saw a thing on Twitter this morning, which was in relation to your, your um, duck 
analogy. Um, it, it says literally, I do not have ducks and they are not in a row. I have monkeys and they are at rave, um, <laughs> which completely yeah. describes my, uh, my, my brain, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but it's funny, as you say, no, no, it's, it's funny that because what I do, I don't want you to think either. He's like, but the flip side to that is funny for me anyway, only for me. And I, I really, anybody who's listening to this, particularly my team, if they do, which they probably won't say, Board listened to me many times anyway, but he's like, don't I don't really don't I suggest this is a good idea, but it's just worked for me. It's like if I'm presenting or or anything that involves what might be classed as something you should really, really do loads of due diligence or anything else, it's the only time I don't really do lots of due diligence because I feel that if I try I do read, for example, I might read through a presentation twice, or I might I might listen to two of your podcasts, or I might do that, but I don't go too much into it because I don't want to like lose that spontaneity. I don't want to lose that. Um, like, for example, when I talked to you right at the beginning before we start recording, I was gauging like, what are these guys like? Are they good laugh? Are they serious? What are they like? You know, and that's it. That's allowed me to behave and operate in the manner that we're doing now. What did you think then? What was your first impression? Just as we just as we wrap up. <laughs> well, I've, well, to be honest, I thought these guys are really good. I, I'm going to enjoy this because I don't know. I mean, I, mean, I listen, listen. I listened to your podcast. I enjoyed it, but. You know, you could have been like thinking, "Oh, here we go here." You know, like, you know, you could have made it really hard for me. Come and tell us the details. You know, what's what's you know what's the algorithm or something. So, but, uh, <laughs> the algorithm. And I, yeah, and of course, and of course, I would have said I would refer you to some really important, clever people, and I'll bring them on later. But, but I think that's important, and that's what I'm saying. So, so yes, I've got the information in the background, but actually, like, how should I be with you guys? You know, how should I be? Can I be myself? Do I have to be really like you know? Well, you know, you know, what is it? And I think if you rehearse yourself too much. And you try too hard, and you lose your originality and your in your own own personality, if you like. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a good point, and, and probably a good point on which to on which to end. I think it's been uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and we've gone through you know a fair chunk of time and very what feels like a very quick for us uh, i hope it was for our listener um <laughs> <laughs> i hope you're still there i don't know maybe <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah I, listen i've I, I really enjoyed it it's really good i mean i know I, I feel that we've gone from what have we done we've done anxiety depression a, a bit, a bit of, uh, i've been making notes i can take you through it if you'd like oh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> We know what Jelly Smack is. We know what Jelly Smack yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. This is when you edit it and it goes, hi, yes, I'm from Jelly, Jelly Smack and I'm depressed. Anyway. anyway <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the intro sorted. <laughs> no, we've taken a trip. It's been a, it's been a good chat. Well, yeah, again, thanks for being on the pod. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And um, it's nice to meet you and get to know you as well. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. And uh, like I say, you know, hopefully we can continue a relationship. And when we have some uh, events and stuff like that, which we'll have coming up over the next few months and stuff, we can maybe get you down here and come and see us. That'd be great. Yeah. And maybe you can help us go bigger. Uh, Oh, I'm sure we can. (laughs) I'm sure our our fundamentally back end AI and tech that's that's, uh, industry leading will definitely help you. There you go. That's (laughs) a way to end, isn't it? (laughs) Right. We'll cut it there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed that. Okay, good chat. That I like Jason. We've been uh, we've been able to catch up with him and Jelly Smack since doing that episode. They're uh, nice guys. So next time on the show, we'll have Patrice Archer, who will be talking to us about how he quit his financial career after the birth of his first child to start building tech businesses. Pretty risky. Anyway, ten years later, he's built and sold a number of companies and is now helping new businesses to get their start through Appy Ventures. 
Once again, give us a follow or subscribe. We're trying to reach that 1,000 subscriber milestone on YouTube, and we are at 992 as we record this episode. So we need eight more subscribers. That would be amazing if we reached 1,000. You can support the show with a one-off coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash thattechshow, and leave us a review on any of the podcasting platforms of choice or podchaser if uh, if you do us a solid there and with that i think it's time to say goodbye and we'll see you next time see you next time <laughs>